Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. There's a lot of what I would probably call like fortune cookie wisdom. And it's it's just kind of intelligence or knowledge that's just kind of stated, but there's it's directionless. There's not a bunch of examples as to how to apply this to your life. And, and that is wisdom. You know, wisdom is guidance. Intelligence is directionless. Wisdom is guidance. You know, so, so kind of moving toward the perspective of really needing to engineer a life that works for you. That's why this thought of an operating system made a ton of sense to me because an operating system is coordinating stacks upon stacks of increasingly complex systems. Welcome back to another episode of the Look Up Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Weinstein, starting off with a big thank you, as we always do. Thanks for listening along, for sharing episodes, for following the newsletter, and for supporting the Patreon. Really appreciate all of you and excited to continue this journey with you all into self in 2021, which is potentially going to be as crazy a year as 2020 was. I don't know if you've been following uh, the news in the markets lately, but there is a populist movement in finance uh, that is being almost censored in some ways by the existing financial services establishment. And it's a fascinating one with the GameStop uh, shorting and a hedge fund manager who lost 55% in one month due to a bunch of anonymous folks on a Reddit subreddit called Wall Street Bets. It's uh, it's crazy. Uh, maybe I'll do a solo episode on that at some point, but I did write about it in last week's Look Up. I'll put a link into the show notes here. It is January 31st, and this past week I had the privilege of recording my first episode of 2021 with a friend of mine named Anthony Emptman. Anthony is the founder and CEO of a Bitcoin-focused hedge fund called Ikigai Asset Management, where Anthony runs pretty much all things. And that's really not what we're here to discuss. As you know, I've had a few episodes on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in the past with some other fund managers, Dan Hannum and and Jake Bruckman. Uh, But this episode was actually to focus on the way that Anthony manages his life. And he thinks about it by building a personal operating system for himself. And knowing Anthony and just the detail focus that he has uh, and the way that he manages, which is really powerful, I thought that the lessons that he could share about building this operating system could be useful for all of you. And so we spoke about Anthony's background, growing up on a family farm in Washington, his time in the Air Force, uh, and then we dive into some of the key concepts of this operating system that he's been building for himself. We discuss concepts like finding your North Star, defining your love languages, exploring your Ikigai, 
and there's some links in the show notes here, we touch on concepts like Maslow's hierarchy of needs and time auditing, basically checking out how you're actually spending your days and a whole lot more. Um, we do talk about a bit about Bitcoin and the trust revolution and what it might mean for all of us. But uh, otherwise, I learned a ton from Anthony. I actually took some notes and have been starting to implement them into my life, especially this time auditing thing, because I spend so much time uh, doing tasks that feel like I'm getting work done, but aren't really aligned with my long-term vision. So I hope that this is as useful for all of you. And without anything further from me, I bring you Anthony Emptman. Enjoy. Anthony, welcome to the Look Up Podcast. Thanks for hopping on. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. Oh, likewise, man. I'm appreciate. I appreciate that you reached out, and you know, obviously, we have a lot to cover. This is the first episode of 2021, or the first recorded episode in 2021. There'll be one that comes out before this, I guess. So, it's a great. I think it's actually a great time of year for listeners to um, to be thinking about. Uh, what you've been thinking about for so long in terms of building a personal operating system uh, for ourselves with everyone kind of creating their New Year's resolutions and trying to build new habits uh, around this time. And most people actually fail at, uh, at continuing those habits. So I'm sure that you'll have some thoughts on that. But just before we get started, I mean, I'd love for the listeners to just learn a little bit more about you. Maybe you could share a bit of your background. Yeah, no, absolutely. My quick background is I, I grew up on a family farm up in Washington State. I'm fifth generation, so my great-great-grandfather homesteaded there uh, in 1887 under the Homestead Act. So that's the act where they gave you 160 acres if you're a natural U.S. citizen and you were going to live on the land for a while. Which is awesome. I actually just found, or uh, my dad showed me a copy of that certificate, the Homestead Certificate, and it was signed by Grover Cleveland, who was like the 22nd president of the United States. You know, now that's 13,000 acres, you know, growing up on a family farm, you know, kind of as soon as your, your feet reach the pedals, uh, you're kind of put to work uh, on, you know, on the tractors or whatever. And I, I'm six, seven. So that, that time came a little earlier for me. But it was, it was a fantastic way to grow up all sorts of lessons and work ethic and principles and, and, and all that. And then on my mother's side, my grandfather was a fighter pilot in the Air Force. He was in the Korean War, big role model of mine, and inspired me to think about applying to the Air Force Academy. And uh, it was kind of a long shot because it's a pretty competitive process. You have to get a congressional or senatorial nomination. And if you, you know, academically and physically, it's pretty competitive. If you get accepted, it's a full ride, this, that, and the other. I ended up getting accepted. And <laughs> funny enough, nice. uh, have you seen Top Gun? Oh, yeah. I've seen Top Gun. And my friend Max, shout out to Max, has uh, worked on Top Gun 2 or the latest Top Gun that they were supposed to release last year, I think. But Super excited yeah. for that one. So you remember the scene where Goose has to eject in the first one and hits his head on the canopy? <laughs> I'm sensing. <laughs> so in, in between your freshman and sophomore year at the academy, 
you go on a program called ops, which is where you just go somewhere in the world and you get experience, whatever that air force base does. Cause mm-hmm. bases tend to have a specialty. So I dropped Luke air force base in Phoenix, Arizona, and that's like the number one F 16 base on the planet. So that meant that I was this 19 year old kid that was going to get an incentive ride in an F 16 with the pilot. So you go up and they say, take the stick, try this, try that. So it's going to be an incredible experience. But before they send you out on the flight line, you have to do a pre-flight physical to make sure you fit in the can- or in the cockpit, being as tall as I am. And they conveniently told me that I wasn't going to fit before I applied, that I wasn't even close to being able to get a waiver. Uh, the city nine- Oh, no way. What's the height limitation on, on an F-16? I think it's a sitting height requirement. So you have to be under 36 inches from your sitting height. And I'm like 41 or 42. So uh, not very close. That would have been snug. <laughs> yeah. I had to kind of change my direction after that. Uh, I grew up, uh, like I said, on the farm, very entrepreneurial type of upbringing. So I started my first company was a interstate trucking company. First employee was, you know, more than four decades older than I was. Uh, so that was a great experience. I ended up getting introduced to crypto uh, several years later in the 2012-2013 timeframe because my cousin was running an, a Litecoin and Bitcoin exchange at the time. And, you know, he was, this would have been like right around Silk Road pre-Mount Gox. He was actually competing with Mount Gox for global volume on some days. So pretty successful. And, and it was the first, I'd grown up doing all sorts of nerdy stuff, you know, building my own computers and so going and building a Litecoin mining farm made a ton of sense to me. And it was like the first blend of technology and finance that I had found that really kind of struck a chord. So I took my business uh, business plan to a finance professor of mine. And, then, and this, was still at, this was still at the Air Force Academy? I was a senior at the academy at this time. And he, he looked at me and he said, Anthony, you're about to be an officer in the United States military and you want to go build a business and magic internet money that drug dealers are using to buy and sell drugs on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that narrative. You have to consider the, the military's reputation here because uh, they kind of control everything you do when you're a U.S. government employee. You know, if you want to go run a marathon outside of work, you have to get approval because it's a high risk activity. So they put mm. a pretty firm boot in that. I ended up commissioning. Uh, I was an officer uh, in the Air Force for six years, just got out in uh, May of 19. I was a software engineer and contracting officer uh, while I was in, started a couple of businesses or was kind of part of the executive leadership at a couple of tech stars companies, real estate, masters in finance, you know, and now, now I'm building Ikigai. Nice. And we can get to Ikigai later as well, but that's a, that's such a cool background. What, what, um, what did your family farm? What did you raise on the farm? Uh, so it's a majority wheat and Timothy Hay and bluegrass. Um, so wheat's kind of mm-hmm. obvious. Timothy Hay would be, you know, what you kind of bail up and send. We send it to Japan for racehorse feed. Uh, oh, cool. Did you guys have animals on the farm? We have a few hundred cattle. Uh, Piedmontese, uh, sell that for beef. My mom nice. has like 30 or 40 horses, though. So. Oh. And you ride? I do not. Much to her chagrin. No. <laughs> too, too tall for the horseback riding as well? or what? <laughs> They don't have any height. Yeah, sitting height it's not the most comfortable of uh, endeavors. <laughs> yeah, I feel you on that. Um, interesting. So, I mean, I guess, like, how much of your time in the Air Force influenced um, the way with which you design your life? Very materially. <laughs> it's... 
you know, when I, when I had to change my career path there, when I found out that I was too tall to be a pilot, I came into, I came to this realization that are a couple realizations. The first was that I wanted to eng- engineer my life to spend as much possible time with the people, my friends and family that, that I care about and I love and kind of blended with a, a couple of the other things that we're going to talk about, like love languages and Maslow's hierarchy needs and, you know, kind of Ikigai, North Stars and Circles of Passion and all that. That just became a really foundational North Star for me. You know, growing up on a growing up on a farm, I can see, you know, I have t- two aunts and uncle, grandma and grandpa, and I can see all of their houses from the house that I grew up in. You know, so it's a, it's a very mm. tight knit, like you've got now four generations all within 30 minutes of one another. And they're, they're like working together in, in some way, shape or form kind of week in and week out. And, you know, that's pretty powerful. You know, if my dad ever wanted to spend time with me, you know, he'd just take me to work and I would lay down on the, the cab or the tractor cab floor and take a nap next to, you know, the dog and <laughs> let me drive. And, you know, it wasn't, you, you grow up in an office job, like dad goes to work. You can't, you can't follow him to work. And so that was, uh, that was a big inspiration for me is, is kind of one of my core North stars. And then, you know, the, the Air Force Academy is a, is a le- what they call a leadership laboratory. You know, the officers in the Air Force are kind of expected to be a jack of all, master of none. But oft times a master, oft times better than a master of one. Is that the, I think that's the second half of that the, might be it. Yeah, that might be that it. people never, people never remember that one. For all you jack of all trades out there who think that it's actually a weakness rather than a strength. All right. And, and, you know, so through that, you know, we learned, we learned a, uh, a lot about leadership, got a lot of hands-on experience doing that. And, you know, true leadership is servant leadership. And if you're familiar with the, the love languages, uh, you know, the five love languages are, acts of service, quality time, words of affirmation, physical touch, and gifts. It just kind of so happens that my primary love language is acts of service. I enjoy providing for and and serving others and, you know, kind of in a leadership capacity. I find a lot of fulfillment in that. And what that ultimately led to, and this is kind of part of part of Ikigai. Ikigai is, you know, what you're good at, what you're passionate about what you get paid for and what the world needs. And, you know, those are four concentric circles that at the center of those, when you find uh, what, what the overlap is, that's your Ikigai. And I kind of defined mine as, you know, to lead because of that servant leadership acts of service to lead a globally impactful organization rooted in technology and finance. That is the specific mission of empowering and lifting up humanity. As opposed to like kind of technology, the the way that it's built been built so far is there's been a lot of centralization and and unhealthy data rights and uh, kind of dopamine manipulation and addiction involved in it. And so kind of that's that's the north star in this operating system that 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 I think about all the time is you know if that's the ultimate step, that's kind of the the, the north star that you're always looking toward. How do you move all the way back to today? and decide what to do today to make sure that you're always kind of incrementally moving towards uh, that. And mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting because I find that on, like on social media, there's a lot of 
what I would probably call like fortune cookie wisdom. And it's, it's just kind of intelligence or knowledge that's just kind of stated, but there's, it's directionless. There's not a bunch of examples as to how to apply this to your life. And, and that is wisdom. You know, wisdom is guidance. Intelligence is directionless. Wisdom is guidance. You know, so, so kind of moving toward the perspective of really needing to engineer a life that works for you. That's why this thought of an operating system made a ton of sense to me because an operating system is coordinating stacks upon stacks of increasingly complex systems, building my life and, and how I think that others should, uh, should think about building their lives is that if, like, if you go all the way to the roots, if you go all the way to like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the first two layers are the, the, <laughs> the first two layers are physical needs, basic needs. You know, you, you need to be safe. You need to have air, water, food. You need to have mental health. And I think too often that's kind of skipped over. If, if you're not in the uh, a healthy physical state or a healthy mental state, you can't move on to, you know, self-actualization or building good relationships or, or any of that. Like you have to have a, a everything has to be right sided internally, intrapersonally before you can move on. And I would tend to argue that just being patient and working on yourself first before trying to go out and, you know, expand your, your circle of influences. I'm blanking on his name right now, but it's one of the kind of famous books is so helpful. So incredibly helpful. If you, let's think about it this way. If it, if it takes you any effort to get a healthy amount of sleep, to eat correctly, to maintain fitness, to uh, be in a healthy state of mind, that's all energy that's being taken away from anything on the more complex level. And it, there, there's kind of like a finite, if you wake up every day, there's kind of like a finite amount of willpower that you have, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's actually a little bit like a muscle. And so if you're using a bunch of willpower to make your bed and avoid eating ice cream every night and, you know, having not having three beers every night or kind of whatever it is that doesn't scale. Right. It doesn't. I think that the, the ghosts of Christmas past, present and future from the, the Christmas, it's not the Christmas story. The Scrooge story is actually a good example here because if you look at all of the systems in your life and you kind of do like a third person audit of it, uh, all the characteristics of yourself and you you know, so third person meaning you're abstracting yourself away from your own personal perspective because that's an emotional perspective. So you use the third person to not be emotional about it. Uh, a little bit like Madden or NBA 2K or whatever. You've got all these sliders mm-hmm. for the different characteristics on the players, right? If you're if you're able to do that, and then use that you know ghosts of Christmas uh, future type of example you can kind of extrapolate it out years or decades into the future and have a pretty reasonable uh, guess of where you're going to end up based on the systems that you have in place for yourself today. If you do a simple time audit, if you are uh, real deliberate about what you do with your time every day and you just measure it, 
and you just you ha- I mean there's tons of apps on your phone that you can use and I, I did this for years while I was in the Air Force um, trying to figure out where my time was actually being invested because we're we're human and we tend to overestimate kind of our own capabilities and our our actual output and uh, and all that and so I, I did that for several years off and on to see how my habits had changed mm-hmm. and it it really gave me something tangible to hold on to that I could extrapolate into the future and say, okay, if this is the, how, what the breakout looks like right now, fast forward a couple of years, I'm not going to be where I want to be at. So I got to make a change. What I want listeners to come away with is if they want, if you listeners want to build an operating system for your life to effectively manage your time and to achieve your goals kind of let's talk let's talk specifically to them about kind of where to start right and it sounds like you first started with the north star and the north star being this is this is what i there's there's a target essentially that i'm moving towards and I may or may not kind of follow that path in any given day or any given week or maybe some months and I'm swerving around, but there's a, there's a, a, a line potentially from A to B, B being the destination of my North Star. And that North Star doesn't have to be like an achievement necessarily, an external achievement. It could be, you know, it could be something internal like tranquility or peace. Maybe, you know, you tell me if it needs to be more specific, but then in the framing of, um, of that North Star, you know, in your in your defining your own North Star, you came to this concept called Ikigai, right? And Ikigai is this almost like 4D Venn diagram um, that tries to help you to identify four things and where they overlap and what falls within the, the concentric circles, the four concentric circles is, as you would describe it, Anthony, your North Star. Yeah, so I think you could. I think you can have multiple north stars, and generally, the way that that I think about making decisions once you arrive at those north stars, um, and and I think that going through like an ikigai exercise, uh, going through the love languages. I want to talk about the love languages first, actually, because because it's it's interesting to me to hear. Um, you know, I think we all carry biases about personalities and like we we uh we tend to to jump to conclusions about people and i think it'd be it's compelling to listeners to hear you go you almost went directly from speaking about your life in the air force and you know living on a farm makes more sense because you're living with your family and whatnot but i mean for me when i hear air force i don't the first word recognition that comes to mind or idea is not love languages so you got to tell us like how you know, how you found out about the, the, it's the five love languages, right? I forget who the author is. Um, I'm going to look it up. It's beautiful. We have the internet while we're doing this stuff. Uh, but I'll, I'll drop a link in here. I mean, I'm sure some listeners are familiar with it and your love language. You said your number one love language is acts of service. Mine is actually Gary Chapman wrote that book. So we'll drop a link in there. My love language Two, um, now that you're saying acts of service, I'm like guilty about my love language, but mine is physical, physical touch. And the second most is, um, is gifts. 
in fact, which is, uh, you know, curious. And I never read the book, so I probably should because I have, I took that quiz, but I have almost like misgivings about where I landed on that. I'm like, I, I should be acts of service. Um, but you know, can you talk to, to us about, you know, how you, how you kind of, maybe how you found out about love languages or, you know, how you were able to integrate them into your framework for, for North star. The reason why they're such an important lens is because that's where a lot of fulfillment and joy comes from is how you interact with the world. And um, through those interactions, are you leaning into things that you naturally care about, which would be your love languages, like your strongest ones or ones that you don't. And, and it's, you know, a, a friend of mine recently reminded me of a, of a quote that is actually a really powerful lens. And it's the, the truth of something tends to lie in the feel of it and not the think of it. So the, the, again, the truth of something tends to lie in the feel of it, not the think of it. And we, we tend to, you know, we're humans. We're very emotional beings, but we always try and convince ourselves that we, we made this decision for X, Y, Z reason. But really, we could rationalize ourselves in and out of basically anything. You know, all the you know, there's been tons of studies on that all the way up to like war crimes in World War Two and rationalizing our well, we were told to do it. And and so if you're abundantly aware of your love languages, you can you can lean into that in terms of understanding is a North Star that you're defining for yourself internally driven or societally driven? Uh, you know, we, we are tribal beings. We do want to fit in. Uh, it takes a lot of courage in order to kind of step outside of societal norms. You know, just kind of like a man talking about love languages. It's it's not something that's, uh, you know, super. <laughs> hey, I talk about those sort of things all the time, but I, I feel you. A military man. Yeah, military. Talking about love languages. It, it, again, it's it's one of a few important lenses. And that's, that's how I came to it. Because I, I recognized that a significant amount of fulfillment for myself came from investing in a lot in relationships with those people that I care about and love. Got it. So, so, okay. So you realized investing in relationships with people that you love was important. Service was important. These helped you to frame, to frame your North star. So first was like, how can I create a life where I can optimize time with people that matter most to me? That's one North star. And you have this second North Star, which is um, you described as defined by Ikigai. So like, let's just break down Ikigai one more time because you described it before, but I think it might have gotten lost in in like the overarching. Um, so Ikigai, there's how many pieces are there to that framework? So there's four. So it's what you're good okay. at, what mm-hmm. you're passionate about, mm-hmm. what you get paid for, mm-hmm. and what the world needs. Okay. So and let's, that, let's kind talk of the about westernization this. of the concept. It, it's uh Oh, interesting. Yeah. What was the, di- what's the difference between the Western version and the way it's been maybe like commoditized into like this, this little drawing product versus the, the true concept from the East? To the best of my knowledge, uh, the, the real con- the concept is a reason for being, and it's just much more abstract and not so procedural. That makes sense. Very Western of us to try to, to try to create procedure around an abstract concept. Um, we always love to try to bring the nameless into, into name form. Um, okay. So for you, let's walk through how you, how you created your Ikigai. Cause you had a beautiful, like almost mission statement 
for this aspect of your life. I'd love, I'd love for you to walk, walk your process through to listeners so they can maybe do the same. Yep. So once I, you know, the love language act service and then the, the lens of, of servant leadership, that's how I got to the, this North star that we're talking about, which is, um, to lead a global impact, impactful organization that's rooted in technology and finance. That is the mm-hmm. deliberate goal of empowering humanity. So technology and finance must have been what you're good at. Yeah, what I'm good at and what I'm passionate about. And what you're passionate about. Were, they, were you good at both and passionate about both? Or were you, was one what you're good at and one what you're passionate about? I would say, I mean, I'm not going to claim to be the most visionary technologist in the world. More, more passionate about it than good at it, for sure. I've never really been that great at languages. And so, you know, mm-hmm. software engineering, uh, learning how to code was a pretty tall, tall order for me. But I, I was passionate about it, so I put a lot of effort into it. And what I was good at was always um, attention to detail, work ethic. So, like, building businesses, you know, came pretty naturally. And then what's good for the world here? That was another one of the circles. So what, what's good for the world? So like with, with Ikigai, um, you know, the, the primary product we have right now is a, is a hedge fund, which, you know, the world doesn't really need another hedge fund. The technology that we're investing in, um, so like Bitcoin, the world needs this technology. You know, over half of the planet lives underneath the authoritarian regime. You know, so that's four plus billion people that can't trust their government to run a sound economy or a sound money. You know, it's, it's kind of difficult for us having grown up, you know, in the U.S. and being blessed with the dollar or others that, you know, grew up in Europe and the euro or yen or whatever to really comprehend why we would need kind of a non-sovereign store of value. But for those that live underneath those regimes where they could theoretically have their assets swiped or their lives upended kind of at the, the top of a hat, Something like Bitcoin and the technology that underlies Bitcoin, you know, it's a bit like a vote for freedom for them. We were all born into a constitution. Some of us were blessed with constitutions that prioritized liberty and freedom a bit more than others. You know, the United States versus North Korea or or China. Not saying that those are one and the same, but something like DLT allows someone to kind of write their own bill of rights, so to speak. They had a constitution they were born into, had no choice, but a bill of rights that you can opt into if you've got an internet connection saying, hey, I kind of like the rights and freedoms that Bitcoin allows me. Let me amend my own personal constitution and add that in. And, you know, there's going to be all sorts of other technologies that kind of fill out that or the the menu or the suite of options that you can choose from. We're not there yet. The primary use right now uh, and the primary media attention right now is just on price movement. Uh, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate uh, given how much promise there is in it. Um, but it's worth, it, it is absolutely worth chasing. The The simple concept is the trust revolution. You know, that's kind of like the, the highest level. That's cool. Um, so we're continuing with Ikigai, which is also the name of your fund, uh, which is a Bitcoin focused hedge fund. And then we have kind of the concept of what you're good at, what the world needs, and then what you're passionate about. And what is the fourth? The what you get paid for. Yeah. The what you get paid for. Yeah. Or how you earn a living or how you, you know, pay for your life, so to speak. You know, so building a business is a pretty, pretty short putt there. So something that 
that is a really helpful lens to as kind of like a first step in because a lot of this has been abstract so far. A really good first step is, and people know this, I, I'm just not sure how honest they are with themselves about it, is if you take money out of the picture, how would you invest your time? So that's one lens. Another lens is, what do you do in your free time? What do you, what do you find yourself clicking on in the articles you're reading, in the books you're reading? And, you know, are you spending your time or are you investing it? You know, who, who do you tend to spend the most time with? Where do you find your thoughts naturally kind of drifting toward? If you think about, if you think back to the times that, uh, you know, you had kind of sleepless nights, what were you thinking about on those nights? Uh, and, and all of those are really good indicators as to if, if you didn't have to worry about providing for yourself or your family, or you weren't worried about societal signaling from a net worth perspective or any of that, what would you do with your time? What would you work toward? And there's hopefully multiple things that people ultimately come to understand on the other side of that exercise. But that's kind of the start of, all right, how do I go from this kind of abstract North Star type of deal out to what can I do today? Yeah. And that makes, I mean, that makes perfect sense. It's like, it's almost like people need to just get real with themselves and do some kind of like internal audit almost is what it sounds like to me. And, you know, there are different, there are different ways you can do that. I mean, you're, you're speaking practically as well. Like, where do my thoughts go? How do I spend my time? Um, those are important questions to ask yourself about. And if you don't, you know, if you don't, then you're, you can find yourself living almost unconsciously and, and creating stories, stories that are not true. Um, for myself in particular, you know, cause that's, that's who I know the best here. It's, uh, you know, oftentimes I think that I'm doing research on new topics, but I'm just spending a lot of time in chat rooms talking to people. Um, and it feels like work because as you know, in our industry, people are in these rooms 24 seven talking about crypto stuff. It feels like work and in some ways it can be value add, but I'm not actually doing the deep learning that I want to do. So I had to get real with myself about that and say, like, one, is this something that I actually should be focusing my time on? Or is this something that I should be partnering with someone that does more? Um, you know, because I can do it, but clearly it's not happening. Or is this something that I should be, you know, carving out more time for? Um, and, you know, getting real about that has been super helpful uh, and almost like an audit for myself. And I just have to literally schedule time where I am not on my phone and where I am kind of doing deeper reading and research. A helpful, a helpful lens for that is one of my best friend's dads growing up kind of taught me this is always ask yourself, and this goes somewhat back to the tranquility point that you mentioned earlier, is, is this going to matter in 30 minutes? Is this going to matter in a few hours? Is this going to matter tomorrow? Is it going to matter next week, a month from now, a year from now? And I would say 80% of things and, you know, the typical 80-20 rule, 80% mm. falls off very early in that time spectrum. And in going back to that time audit of really understanding what it is you do with your time, you're probably going to find a good chunk of things that you do that are not going to matter or not building towards something larger, even just moving out a couple weeks into the future. 
Uh, and so if, if, if you're another concept that we talk about a lot, or I, I at least see a lot in kind of the, the fortune cookie wisdom sections of Twitter is the, the concept <laughs> called deliberate practice. And it's, you know, it's kind of like podcasts. Podcasts are, there, there's a lot of consumption involved with them because you feel like you're doing something productive, right? Because you're listening to potentially novel or innovative ideas that are going to make your life better. But if you're not taking notes on those podcasts, you're really just consuming. It's in one ear, out the other, because a week down the road, are you going to be able to recall the most important principles? Probably not. That's not how our brains work from a neurological perspective. You have to you have to lean into understanding um, how you actually get something crystallized in your neural pathways in order to actually remember something and build that foundation. Right back to the operating system, ensuring that you remember and are able to use things is at one of the more foundational levels of that operating system. So deliberate practice. The easiest way to remember that concept is if it's worth doing, it's worth reviewing. It's like if you go to if you go to the basketball gym and you shoot a hundred free throws and then you're done, you do that for a month versus if you go to the basketball gym and you shoot a hundred free throws, but every 10 you have someone there that's recording. All right. You missed left, missed right, missed short, missed long, uh, X, Y, Z. And you're always stopping to review. Okay. It looks like this is a trend that's happening. This is how I fix it. Right. Mm. And that's what I mean by the time audit is you're really going to get to see where your time is being invested and how much you're getting out of an hour of time or a day worth of time. Not every hour is created equal. That tends to be how people think about careers, but there are people that can get a lot more done in an hour than uh, others. You know, like a really experienced mm. senior software engineer can probably get a lot more done than a, than a junior software engineer. And, you know, so that that's, that's it. Like the, again, at the, the, the lower levels of that operating system is I'm always looking for ways to effortlessly get more out of an hour. And for our, gener- and for our generation, one of the simplest things is just being better at interacting with your computer, right? Keyboard shortcuts, how you set things up, you know, what you allow to encumber your time. My, like none of my devices ever come out of do not disturb, ever. You know, if 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 I need to, uh, if someone needs to get a hold of me, and they're in my favorites, they'll call me. Otherwise, it's not time sensitive. Yeah, for sure. And there was I, I did um, for digital for cleaning the digital space. I had a guest on um, named Nir Eyal who wrote a book called Indistractable. I enjoyed it, and actually, you know, you mentioned the willpower as a finite resource. He brought up some counter research to that that he actually doesn't believe that willpower is a finite resource unless we believe it to be, which is an interesting uh, conversation to have. But I think so on that, sorry to interrupt, I actually tend to agree with him is I view willpower somewhat similar to work ethic in that they're muscles, right? If, if you go out today and you try and run a five minute mile, it's going to be pretty tough. But if you work at it over a long period of time, same thing with lifting, you go out, you go out and try and bench 315, it's going to be pretty tough. But if you start it, go out and start with 135 and you build up to it pretty soon, it's going to feel a lot easier to do what was previously difficult. And that's what I meant with the, the kind of like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs is if you can get, and this is the power of habit um, by Charles Duhigg. If you, it doesn't take really any mental effort to accomplish tasks that have been committed to the habit centers of our brain. 
And so if you can if you can shove everything that you know exists on some of the lower levels of Maslow hierarchy of needs that also don't overlap with something you're passionate about, it's really valuable. Because then you the the willpower muscle gets stronger, the work ethic muscle gets stronger. And it's not, I always think about this in systems. It's never about goals. It's never about outcomes. It's, it's always about systems. Because if you have the right systems in place, back to auditing what you do with your time and the characteristics of yourself, like the Madden player, um, if you are improving those year over year, ultimately the outcomes will come around as long as you've got the right systems in place. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because this, this maps over to yoga philosophy. The idea of karma yoga is acting without a f- um, a- attachment to the outcome. And it's, it's exactly that. It's just like, do the work, focus on the work. So Obama said, and I've repeated both of those things many times on this show. Um, but I want to I go back to, um, to the software engineer uh, because I think uh, you know, what you were describing was almost like intelligence versus wisdom, which you had spoken about before. And you and I have spoken before and like, you know, we, I want to, I want to kind of lean into this kind of idea of experience and and pain as well. Um, Because I think that many of us are, are behave in ways that avoid pain, but you have a pretty interesting um, framework that you follow for what, what pain actually is. Um, And so we'd love for you to chat about that, but real quick, the time audit thing, um, just so people know, like you can literally just have a notebook and every hour and a half at the end of that hour and a half, just write down what you did, you know, and you can do that for a week or, or two weeks or whatever. And it should be enlightening enough for, for those of you that think you don't have time to get the things done that you need to do. You'll probably come to the realization that you have abundant time, but you just spend it doing things that you don't even realize. Um, and so, I don't know, Anthony, have you, do you still do that with yourself, that type of time audit? Or do you feel like you've come to a place where? So it's, it's a little bit like the lifting example is once you get years down the road, it becomes something that you do naturally or is easy or is kind of more mm. habitual. So it's not that I, I do it more sporadically now. Generally, about once a year, I will do it for about a month. And it's not that I'm really changing anything about the way that I go about my day. It's just kind of turning it back on to see how it compares to past. And, you know, if I'm actually, if the systems are working, so to speak, has there been incremental improvement? And that's all I, that's all I really care about. To your point with the, the yoga is detaching yourself from the outcome is it's, it's a pursuit of better. I actually have an Asana project called in, in Pursuit of Better, where I've listed out all of those characteristics that I consider to be my Madden player. I, I, yeah, you can do it in the book. I enjoy doing it on my phone because it's something that's always with you. And the kind of level of accountability that I held myself, I hold myself to when I do that is very high. I'm finding a reason to turn the timer off, not turn it on. It's kind of like, oh, I didn't do, or I wasn't as productive that hour uh, as I as I should have been. So I'm only going to record a half an hour. It's finding every reason to shortchange yourself instead of inflate your 
kind of own personal ego and say, oh, I worked 80 hours this week or 100 hours this week. Really good job. You got fi- to go to the other end of the spectrum. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that definitely answers my question. And then um, I want to talk about pain a little bit and experience. Yeah, so the it, humans, again, we're emotional. And so we're terrible at learning without pain. You know, the simple example mm-hmm. is the kid that touched the hot stove. It's not until he touches the hot stove, regardless of how many times his mom tells him not to, he's still going to touch it. And that's kind of basically how we go about living our lives. Really, for me, until I started thinking about this third person concept, because it it allowed me to kind of just look at myself in a different aspect. And and when I'm talking to, so like with with Ikigai, we have a lot of, um, you know, relatively successful individuals that have invested with us and they've all built, a lot of them have built businesses and, you know, they've got a lot of lessons learned along the way. And, you know, I'm pretty young and most of them are, uh, you know, much older than I am. So I have a lot more wisdom. They've gone through that pain. And so if I'm able to ingest that, understand it and apply it to my Madden character, apply it to myself without needing to go through that pain, that is a huge huge advantage. So that's the difference between intelligence and wisdom. You know, again, intelligence is directionless, wisdom is guidance. You know, it, it, it's a, there, intelligence doesn't naturally come with, it doesn't come with direction because you, you have to go through the pain in order to, the, the pain is like guidance. It's the it's it, it's telling you, all right, got to shift away from that. That was a bad that was a bad decision. You know, the there's a a quote: "Pain is the hammer of the gods to break a dead resistance in the mortal's heart." <laughs> it's kind of a fancier way of where way of talking about all this. But I think if you were to if you were to really accept that, and then also accept that, you know, we're all wired differently. Mm-hmm. Different things are going to work for different people. Not all pain is good. You know, there, there is some pain that um, you should recognize that is just how you're wired. It's kind of like for myself, I'm naturally a night owl. My circadian rhythm, I tend to be productive and creative, you know, kind of after the sun goes down. So I, I enjoy and get naturally tired, say, between like 2 and 4 a.m. And if I'm going to constantly be fighting that, I'm not leaning into how my body naturally wants to work. That makes sense. Yeah, totally. I think knowing, knowing yourself is super important and the experience helps you to know yourself better, which is why like, you know, as a kid, you're always like, you're always like uh, told, you know, basically just like, it's like as a kid, you don't really appreciate how important experience is. You know, and you're constantly reminded by your elders how important experience is, but you don't really know. And then I think even as like a young adult, you don't really know what experience is. And like what I love about being in my 30s is that I feel like I've lived long enough to understand how valuable experience is and yet still young enough to kind of make a lot of stupid mistakes and still continue to like lean into that pain and learn. Um, And so I know when I speak to someone that's got like another 10 years on me. Um, I'm like, all right, like this person, you know, this person's lived a little longer. They might've seen a few things like I'm, I'm, I'm happy to listen. I think, you know, this is non sequitur, but I just believe that 
uh, respect for, you know, for elders in our society has kind of like, is something that I'd like to see more of. I mean, you coming up on a farm with four generations of your family living in one area is like so beautiful to me, you know? Um, and I think it's so important to kind of like understand the wisdom of, of our elders. I also, I want to get like a little bit more personal, um, like in your life, what, has there been any transformative experiences that were maybe painful, but that have led you into a place of, of deeper wisdom that you could share with the listeners? Um, yeah, the, the, I think the first answer that comes to mind is some of my closest relationships. So that would be like my girlfriend, uh, my best friend who I built a real estate business with almost entirely due to a lack of empathy those relationships have been, you know, tested and, and nearly kind of destroyed largely mm-hmm. because I lacked empathy and, you know, the, it, through kind of a lot of pain of coming to that realization, I, you know, you, you, again, I know I'm harping on this, but back to, the third person example, that's really what allowed me to change myself, right? Most people don't typically change. You, you know, you've got like five to 15% that someone can change kind of by external stimuli or somewhere thereabouts is kind of what I've, I've read. So it's got to come from inside. You know, it's like people that have life-altering experiences generally relative to health. It's not until they have that kind of existential, you know, experience in their life that they're convinced that, oh, I am actually wrong and I need to change. Yeah. I mean, how did you realize that you, that you were lacking empathy and what did you do to change that? I think that the realization just came from the relationships starting to fall apart. There being a lot of quite literal uh, emotional pain in those. And that the, you know, one of Stephen Covey's core principles is seek first to understand, which I just, I, I wasn't doing. I couldn't, I couldn't understand. I had not internalized that we're all wired differently. I, I didn't understand, well, you know, I'm working this hard. Why can't someone else work that hard? Or I think like this. Why don't you think like this? This is so rational, so logical. Why can't you understand this? Like, that's just not, it's the simple example of men and women just being wired differently, you know? Um, just gave me the, uh, the opening quote for my newsletter this week, seek first to understand. I think we all need to hear that right now. I mean, man, it's craziness out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, um, are you still, um, are you still friends with, uh, with your former, with not, maybe not your former, but your best friend that you started your company with? Yep. Your relationship survived. Oh yeah. Oh, that's cool. I, I didn't, my, um, my closest friend, I did, and I decided to start a business together when we were 23. And I mean, we still keep in touch, but like we were such good friends, you know, and, uh, it really tested us. And I think in a lot of ways we just we couldn't seek to understand, you know, like we didn't see first to understand. I think we both just really wanted to be right. Um, and you know, one thing I've, one thing I've learned through painful experiences is that oftentimes when we care more about being right than anything else, um, it has a lot of consequences and, you know, it's, it's hard though, because like our egos want us to be, you know, want us to be right, want us to be just. And I, I think in this, 
what I'm thinking about and what I'm writing about right now actually is uh, for this week is inauguration day, you know, and you have, you have the intention of like many armed militias to go to state capitals and, and protest. And it feels like a powder keg to me. And it has felt like a powder keg for some time. Um, and, you know, the election I thought was going to be a th- an issue and it was, but it wasn't, you know, violent, thank God. And, uh, you know, the question mark is like, where do we go from here? when 50% of Republicans plus think that the election was rigged. Um, and, you know, clearly liberals and Democrats do not. And I don't even think you can have a, pl- it's, 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 it's become so impossible to have like a political conversation across the aisle. And so this concept of seek first to understand would be, would be quite useful um, today. And it happens first at the individual level, I think. Um, so thanks for sharing that. During the, the election, I wrote a quick article on that. Um, I, I titled it, The World is, is Bigger Than Red Versus Blue. And it is, you know, I was kind of talking about what that means to us in the military or military members. And the military, you're taught to defend rights you're taught to defend positions. So like the commander in chief is a position, regardless of who's in it, that carries a kind of specific set of roles and responsibilities. And we defend that position and not the person in the position. Right. So there's an abstraction away from there. And so when you, I mean, the the great thing about America is that, you know, we were founded on principles that were kind of meant to bring out the the best in in all of us. It's founded on life and liberty. And it is to that seek first to understand. I'm probably in the in the camp of if you can't defend the opposing arguments opinion as well or better than your own, you're probably not qualified to or I wouldn't feel qualified to have an opinion on the subject because you haven't put enough effort into understanding others. Yeah, I, I often hear, you know, like I've brought up by, you know, progressive kind of liberal parents on the coast, you know, New York, and I often hear they'll ask, like, how can, how can these people believe this guy? How can these people, you know, believe that Trump represents them or cares about them? But they'll ask it in and like love you both because you're probably listening. Um, <laughs> respect. But like, you know, I think in asking that question, it's more of a statement than a question. And like that question is actually really, really important to, to truly ask and to maybe lean into a little bit more with with open ears and an open heart. Um, you know, so it's, uh, I, I, you know, I can imagine being, you know, I don't know, like it, it would be tough to be in the military if I, if I didn't believe in the, um, in the, in the person who was, uh, in that position and I still had to defend them. Right. And I like, at what point, you know, and I don't know what your politics are and we don't need to talk about that, but you know, at what point does it become, you know, those rights are, I'm defending the rights more than the position. That's like a really tricky question. And of course, one that our system was built to try to make sure was never had to be asked. Right. And, um, I don't know. I mean, I've been, you know, I've been maybe getting to the edge of tinfoily with, with the way I'm thinking about what's happening in America right now. So I hope that I'm, 
I hope that it's overblown, but I just look at like two days from now, you know, I, I just, I really just, all I can do is really just like pray, you know, and just pray for peace and for people to just find some kind of like reconciliation. Um, and I hope that that's the case. There's a lot of really angry, upset folks out there. Uh, and I don't know, you know, all I can do is listen really and pray. So what is that? The, the serenity prayer, God grant me the serenity to know what I can change, the courage to go after what I can change and the wisdom to know the difference, to know the difference. Yeah. Something like that. Something along those lines, but it's, it's a beautiful one. The, uh, yeah, kind of the final it, it, one and a last point that I'd make on the recognizing that we're all wired differently that that most people listening probably have experience with is just the the difference in how men and women are wired you know it's 80 percent of the time you know w- women would tend to want uh, a safe place to vent and 20 percent of the time they they want a solution and and men are kind of the opposite it, we majority of the time 80 percent of the time we just want a solution and 20 percent of the time we want a safe place uh, and so if you just I found that to be really helpful in, in my relationship is just asking, you know, if, if something's come up and like, all right, do you want a safe place or do you want a solution? Because, you know, first reaction mm. is like, right, I want to give you a solution. This is how you solve your problem. Here you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm like that too. But that's not actually what's what's needed. And if, you, if you're able to kind of extrapolate that out to understand that most people don't actually need what you think they need. You know, everyone needs something a little different. It's it's one of the ma- most kind of powerful things that I've learned in the last 10 years is, is really internalizing that and working on, which is a never-ending endeavor, working on the humility required to mm. follow through on that. Because it's one thing to say it. This is back to the intelligence and wisdom part. Um, but it, it, it takes wisdom to actually follow through on it. So Totally solutions versus safe place reminds me of uh school of psychology another guest andrew horn came on the show and and uh he talked about uh, a specific school of psychology which i'm blanking on but the kind of one framework they have is basically like when somebody's sharing with you you invite whether or not you are offering reflection or just listening Right. Like if somebody wants, sometimes people just need to vent their problems and they actually don't want someone to come back to them and be like, Hey, you know, like, here's what I think. It's just like, no, I just need someone to listen. So that's the safe place that you're describing. And, uh, I'll pull up, I'll pull, I'll put a link to, um, to that school of psychology as well. When I, when it comes to mind and when I'm doing the show notes, um, I want to, I want to do, I want to talk about like one more, um, idea that you've, you presented to me, which is kind of this concept of like you know because i know you're a hard worker i know you're a grinder and you know i i am too like this concept of like dreaming versus grinding what do you think about that or effort grinding and effort versus like almost like effortlessness right so there's this um behind my desk in the other room i have this poster that uh, if you can imagine on one side is just a stairway and on the other side is uh, kind of a slide that starts out real steep and then kind of trails off that the slide being kind of representative of a dream and uh, the steps being representative of a grind, but both of them kind of ultimately 
you know, end up at the the high point at the pinnacle. And by by grind or, or effort, I don't I'm not necessarily a huge fan of the word grind because it, it has like a negative connotation in my mind, more so like effort. You know, that 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 is, you know, daily work ethic and deliberateness and strategy that comprises those systems that we've been talking about that ensure that over a long enough time period, outcomes will naturally follow. That you yourself are going to get better. You're going to make those around you better. And over time, you're going to make progress. You're going to make improvement regardless of a week's outcome or a month's outcome or a year's outcome. If you stick with it long enough, you will get there. Which is which tends to be it's not sexy. Like the nuance is not sexy. It it you know, details details matter. You know, it's the the overnight success that took twenty years type of uh, <laughs> adage. Whereas whereas dreaming, you know, dreaming early on is easier and it and it feels faster but because you're you're missing those systems because you're missing that rich that kind of like ritualized framework that discipline it the more it becomes exposed to reality you just don't make any progress you know the slide gets too steep and you can't keep pushing forward you know reality reality is kind of cruel and you know it doesn't really it 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 doesn't care about you it doesn't care about your dreams yeah, that's interesting. And it's, I love, this is why I love doing this show because, you know, I could have you come on and, and share that, you know, reality doesn't care about you and, you know, um, the slide could get steeper and, you know, we need to think about disciplined, you know, effort and rigor in the day to day. And then I could have someone like Blue Cosmic Eagle come on, you know, six, six weeks ago or 10 weeks ago and talk about manifestation. And I don't necessarily think that the two are, are um, mutually exclusive. And that's one of the that's one of the beautiful lessons of yoga that I've had, which is like this duality thinking where, you know, two seemingly opposites can coexist and both be true. I also think that's important for political conversation, but we don't need to continue with that. Um, and the the grind that you're describing to me is like one of the niyamas in yoga is this uh, this concept of tapas, and tapas is the fire and it's the discipline. You know, oftentimes people think of yogi and they think of like you know, chill, like sitting, meditating, you know, like love and, and kumbaya, but there's like an immense amount of discipline that goes into, into like truly practicing. Um, and I think that's really, uh, that's really important. And also the discipline of just that you described early on, the discipline of kind of just like auditing yourself and stress testing these ideas and putting them into practice. It's one thing to read about these things and to listen to podcasts about them. It's another thing to actually like say, hey, here's my framework. Let me actually look at my life in the way that Benjamin Franklin did. You know, like when you talk about the avatar, when you talk about your Madden character, what comes to mind for me is like, you know, Ben Franklin didn't have video games, but when he created his system of values and then every day he would reflect upon one value. And if he didn't achieve that value in his mind in that day, he'd keep continuing until he got it for, I think like 14 days in a row, maybe 13. Um, and then he'd move on to the next value, but he'd, he'd evaluate all of them against each other. And in that day as well. And what he found was that even though, um, even though one, you know, he was successful at one, others would start to slip. And it was this constant game of whack-a-mole values, principles, whack-a-mole, whatever you want to call it. 
But in the end, he said it was the greatest, the, the greatest effort of his life, even though he failed at achieving all of those things simultaneously every single day. And that's like the grind, right? Like that's, I know you don't love that word. That's the effort. That's the, you know, the dedicated work that we can do in ourselves. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right. It's, um, that, that goes back to the deliberate practice. If it's worth doing, it's worth reviewing. You know, I'm kind of looking at my, my like project over here. I've got, I've got a bunch of different characteristics broken out and from like intrapersonal. So like inner, inner skills, uh, interpersonal, so skills with other people, linguistic, logical, health and athleticism, you know, and each one of these probably has six or 10 so characteristics in each, you know, one of the ones, and we've only kind of touched the tip of the iceberg here. And <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, this is going to be, you're going to be writing a book soon. Um, yeah, I know you haven't said that publicly, but I'm going to put it out there because you shared with me like a very thorough document on, on, you know, your thoughts on basically creating this operating system for life. So, right. And so one of the, one, uh, in the, in the intrapersonal section, you know, we've covered a good chunk of these in terms of coachability, managing stress and discomfort, patience, circles of passion, time investment, time audit, caching, Action, confidence are the ones that I have in there right now, and the those the concept of caching. You know, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with this in terms of computers, but like just in in human life, like your first layer cache is the things that you need access to the most. So it'd be like your nightstand. That's where your phone, wallet, and your keys go. And then your your closet is set kind of a second layer cache and storage somewhere in your house or your garage is your third layer cache, and then you know an offsite storage facility. And it's all based on how frequently you're going to need that item. So our brains work in a relatively similar way back to um, committing things to memory and ensuring that you're getting better and that you don't have a lot of slippage, you know, slippage, meaning that if you listen to a podcast and you don't take notes, likelihood that you're going to remember the the important things from that well into the future is pretty low. You know, it's, it's how much time you invest relative to each marginal unit of progress. And so notes or caching are an incredibly important piece of that. So like those fleeting shower thoughts, that's your first layer of caching. You need to have somewhere that you can offload those thoughts immediately because then you, you've, you've offloaded the responsibility for your brain to remember it and it's captured somewhere that you can go back and, and review later and organize. And so my first layer cache is just a Slack message to myself. Because it's mm. on my phone, which I almost always have my phone on me. And within Slack, you can create threads, as you know, so that if I have a thought along a specific kind of train of thought, I can just search in that uh, channel, go back to that, and add another little one-sentence snip of whatever my latest shower thought was. And then from mm. there, it builds into an increasing amount of organization. But that's, it, it, you know, that, that coincides pretty directly with the, the, the time audit thing um, and, and capturing and understanding and reviewing how it is that you operate and knowing where you have a lot of work to do, how you can squeeze more out of, you know. The, the how often do you review the thoughts that you send to yourself? Because I often find myself sending myself a lot of stuff. I actually do the same thing on Telegram. I have a save message channel that I just if I see something that's interesting, I'll send it. I also have like a, a tiny little ideas notebook that I carry or like an ideas section in my iPhone notes. 
Um, the only benefit, one of the benefits of writing weekly is I, I audit all of that information weekly. You know, I have to sit down for hours to like read the things that I send myself to read that I want to share. And it forces me to actually read with ideas that I have. I, I struggle because I, I can tend to be a little bit all over the place. So how, how often are you like, you know, you're sending that to yourself all the time, but how often are you sitting down and actually like digesting it? So because I blend you know, thoughts and ideas and kind of abstract notes in there about, you know, how I feel about something or, or a thought that I'd like to share with someone all the way down to, you know, Hey, I got to run payroll this week. If I, you know, so you end up reviewing it kind of daily or at some level daily when, when it turns into a more sophisticated thought, it then goes into Asana or Google docs and those are just reviewed less frequently naturally got it so you've created almost like a digital hierarchy for the way that you process your thoughts and ideas that's right yep very cool um i know there was a lot you know that we wanted to cover that maybe we didn't get to but i want to give you the opportunity just you know maybe close it out with for the listeners share anything that's immediately coming to mind uh and then of course where they can find you uh, and your writing and your and your thoughts, because I think you have a lot of wisdom uh, to share, not just intelligence. You got both. Yeah. So our content site for Ikigai uh, is called Kana and Katana dot com, both with K's. And, you know, that's on my LinkedIn. That's on my Twitter. Just Anthony underscore Entman. There's a culture section on there. Good chunk of it's on, you know, my Twitter and my LinkedIn. And Parting, parting thoughts. I would probably use the one-two punch of, you know, Andy Stanley is a, a one of my kind of favorite speakers, and he has these lessons for kind of public speaking and mm-hmm. ensuring that you're able to engage your audience. I mean, when I was in the military, I didn't do any of it. I wasn't really allowed to to do anything outside of the military uh, on that front. So I'm very mm-hmm. new to it and um, very rough. But one of the lessons that he he said was, Make sure that you're giving the audience things that are memorable and portable because it's back to that access. People need something to grasp onto in order to then return to it and try and remember, recall the, the deeper lesson. The first part of that, I would say, is deliberate practice is, you know, if it's worth doing, it's worth reviewing. That's the first takeaway. And, you know, the the second takeaway is the third person perspective is get out of your own viewpoint, be your own coach and make yourself better. You know, do an audit of everything that you kind of see in yourself or don't see in yourself when would like to and stack that up against where you'd like to be in years down the road. The, that ghosts of Christmas future example is a really good example because it, you know, the reason why that story was so impactful is it allowed Scrooge to to kind of transport to the future and understand the pain that he would have in his life if he continued going down the path he was. So if you're able to do that now, kind of think about that and, and, and postulate it and, and try and experience that, it's pretty powerful. It'll get you to change your ways if, if you're having a hard time. Awesome. Thank you, Anthony. I, um, I'm going to leave a lot of show notes here, I imagine. 
And I would, I would say like for the listeners, you know, like you've, you, you've heard a bunch of different tools and frameworks and you, know, you can sit down with them and think about them. You can, you can sit down and try to identify your Ikigai. Um, you can do a time audit. You know, you can think about your North Star, project out into the future in this Scrooge example or think of yourself as the avatar in the third person. So there's a lot of, a lot of practical, practical wisdom here as well, which I think is cool. So thank you for that, Anthony, man. Um, all right. Well, appreciate you taking the time. I'm glad we finally got this done. I know. It was enjoyable. We'll probably do another one. We'll have to talk a little more about interpersonal uh, at some point uh, when the book comes out. Putting a lot of pressure on me to write a book. <laughs> I think I think it'd be a good read. I want you to get it out there. All right. All right, man. Speak soon. Likewise. All right. Good stuff, brother. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. All right. Hello, look up listeners. One final note before we go. Thank you again for tuning in. Going forward, we'll be releasing new episodes of Look Up every Wednesday morning, Eastern Time. If you're getting value from this podcast and you want to give back to support our future, please take a moment to contribute to our community on Patreon. Our Patreon contributors have access to some great additional perks, including one-on-one meditations with yours truly. I've shared the link in the show notes below the episode. You can also find the show notes to this and previous episodes on our website, www.thelookuppodcast.com. If you can't contribute at this time, there are other helpful ways to give back. You can share this episode on social media, tag me, and or leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Trust me, every review goes a long way. If you want more content, including more of my personal thoughts, you can follow me on social media. My handle on both Instagram and Twitter is at warkmeinstein. W-A-R-C-M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N. Or you can subscribe to the Look Up Weekly newsletter on my website. I'm also very responsive to email, so feel free to send questions, booking inquiries, speaking requests, and sponsorship opportunities to M-A-R-C at thelookuppodcast.com. Finally, for those of you that don't know, I lead virtual yoga, breathwork, and meditation classes as well as one-on-one coaching and teaching sessions, which you can book from the website or my social media accounts. Thank you to Sam Palumbo and Patch Kid Music for the great intro and outro tunes and for the sound engineering. Thank you, brother. And thank you to all of you listeners for continuing to support the show, for tuning in. And I hope that you've been enjoying this journey as much as I have. Bye.